Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. I am so happy to be talking with you today about mystical experiences, spirituality, and religion, and many other topics with uh, Graham Standish, who runs the Samaritan Counseling Guidance and Consulting Center and helps many people. I'll let him explain exactly what he does, but I read his book, Humble Leadership, Being Radically Open to God's Guidance and Grace. And get that subtitle correct. And, and I love the book because we live in a complex society and there are many leaders. You pointed that out in the book. And we need to be reminded of humble leadership. And one of the things I liked so much in that book was that you pointed out the minute you are aware that you're humble, well, you're no longer humble. <laughs> and that really kind of struck me. But thanks for joining me today. Thank you. And I want to begin because we had a conversation and I'm always interested in talking with people who want to bridge the gaps and not leave people in silos. Like me, I feel like many times near-death experiencers are speaking to other near-death experiencers and people who are interested in near-death experiences. And I think anyone who believes in God, we ought to all come together and have conversations and not silo apart. But what sparked your interest in studying near-death experiences? Yeah, actually, you know, for me, um, uh, it's, it's like everything else, because as a counselor, we always go back to our childhoods. Um, but I had a number of, I think, significant, not, not exotic, but significant spiritual experiences as a child. And growing up um, in the church, it really felt like they're really into the theology, they're really into, you know, the ritual, but no one was really speaking to the spirituality I was seeking. And really what happened was, um, I guess it was 1976 was, I, I believe when Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life came out. And I remember getting that book. And for me, it was like the lights turned on because um, it was, you know, this is really capturing my sense of what I sensed about the world, what I sensed about everything else. Um, at the time, I wanted to be a therapist and uh, studied psychology, and I really saw a connection between what Raymond Moody was talking about um, and just the interviews he did about people becoming self-aware, people becoming, um, you know, just more aware of the world around them, more aware of, of their own past, their own, you know, and the experiences were transforming for people. Um, what it eventually led um, through my experiences as a therapist, um, had a lot of uh, patients in a psychiatric hospital who had spiritual experiences, um, some negative, some positive, but they were doing things on their lives. And it really led me to want to dig more deeply into the spiritual world. It eventually led me to become a Presbyterian pastor and eventually led me to get a PhD in spiritual formation so I could really study in depth kind of spiritual experiences, mystical experiences. And I, I really think Raymond Moody's book um, got me on that path. And, and really throughout my life, I have been studying um, not only the Christian spiritual history and the experiences of mystics throughout the century in Christianity, but over time, I have probably read 30 or 40 near-death experiences books, including yours, Angels in the OR. 
Um, since you plugged my book, I will definitely plug that book, but they already know about your book. Um, uh, and also including Howard Storms, he has two books. Um, I've read both of them and, and um, kind of interestingly enough, had a, um, an experiment to see how it would go if Howard came and talked to a bunch of Presbyterians um, <laughs> and that was a really interesting experience because people didn't know what to do with near-death experiences, but they hung on every word he said, and you could just see them all going, wow, this is, I don't know what to think about this. It doesn't fit, as you said, in my silo. So anyway, that's how I, I ended up. It's really a fascination with spiritual experiences and how they transform us in general, of which near-death experiences are a part of. And why do you think people fear near-death experiences? Because I grew up in a traditional Christian home, uh, kind of evangelical, but I remember people talking about miracles and, and you know, feeling the presence of God and, and all kind of mystical experiences. And then the near-death experience, I think, was so large to them, though. You know, it's, it's like it's not a quick little moment. It was, you know, life-changing that there was some um, fear, I think, that people felt around my near-death experience. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're running into something that's, that's uh, an issue, which is, I really believe almost every religious movement really begins with some kind of an experience. You know, whether it's the experiences of St. Francis, whether it's the experiences of Martin Luther, or of George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, or of the Pacific you know, the Azusa Street revival that led to the foundation of the Pentecostal church. People have experiences, and then they kind of develop a theology around those experiences. And what happens is, over time, people move away from the experiences, and they begin to latch on to the beliefs about the experiences. Problem with near-death experiences, they don't fit the theologies and the beliefs that people have developed about what happens in the afterlife. And the problem is, what do you do with someone who just said, I had this profound experience. I know the difference between that experience and a dream. This was real, but it doesn't fit their beliefs about what should happen. And I think, um, I think there are people who really, they become afraid that if I have to accede to your experience, then my whole belief system begins to crumble. And it's a, you know, and part of it is because they have a stronger faith in their beliefs than they do in the relationship with God or, you know, whatever the higher power is. And I, I think there's a fear that my whole belief system will crumble and then what will I hold on to? One link that I think can exist, and I hope that people hear this and really get it, is a lot of people who are religious pray and have faith and a lot of near-death experiencers feel God's energy. You know, that's mm -hmm. what I talk about all the time is I feel God, but you know, you write in your book about listening to God's guidance and it's kind yeah. of the same thing, just different words that, you know, listening to God, feeling God. And I think it's that, that experience that kind of shocks people that, you know, that idea that, Oh, yeah. you, feel God, you know, that's kind of intense. Whereas people feel that they have to have faith and near-death experiencers a lot of times say, oh no, I just know, you know, I just feel right, that. Right, right. But you know, you bring out something which is throughout the Christian history, there have been people who not only have had experiences like you mentioned, but there are people who have lived lives cultivating those experiences. I mean, 
I, I'm reading um, a book right now called Letters by a Modern Mystic by a guy named Frank Laubach. And he was a um, missionary to the Philippines teaching reading back in the 20s and 30s. And he decided to cultivate an experiment of, I'm going to turn every moment of my life into a conversation with God. And, and he's not alone. I mean, this is, he's basing it on people like Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection or Thomas Kelly, who was a Quaker who lived in the 20th century. Um, and, and he writes about his profound experiences. But you also can tell people don't know what to do with that because they're kind of used to, well, no, my spirituality is, is ritualized. And this is this ongoing conversation where he's starting to experience coincidences just happening all over the place where he says, I turn around and I find God has already done it for me. And, um, you know, I, I, people, you know, it's, it's a, it's, you know, that sense of knowing you were given the gift of an, ex, of a really tr uh, traumatic and dramatic experience that helped you know. Uh, I think there are other people who've had to try to cultivate a life that opens those to those kinds of experiences. But I think a lot of people don't know what to do, how to cultivate that kind of life. And they're not really sure what to do with someone who's just had an experience that doesn't fit with my life. Yeah, and then it seems that silo is created because people yes. who call themselves spiritual, not religious, get kind of angry with religious people for not accepting them. And then right. you know, there's, there's a, there really is a division. And I keep thinking, no, 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 I have felt the Holy Spirit in churches. I have felt, you know, the love of God in certain churches. I know it exists. And I know that it, you know, it's even more profound to me than some great spiritual talks, you know, in the mystical community that I've gone to, you know, just a simple church. So it really depends on the purity of spirit, I think, you know, of, of a congregation or a spiritual gathering. And, and that's just kind of my, I live so much on energy and feeling, but right. yep. understand where I'm coming from. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, again, I, I think this is, you know, sometimes it's the same language, sometimes it's different, but you know, the really great spiritual writers throughout Christian history um, have written about the same kinds of things. Um, you know, the Desert Fathers talked about this. They, you know, talked about, you know, really being alive with the flame of God. And that's what they experienced after weeks and months and even years out in the desert, that they really had this sense of this, this light and presence flowing through them. So, yeah, I mean, I know exactly what you're saying. And one thing I loved in your book, and it made me chuckle a little, um, was the idea of uh, Teresa of Avia talking about her gifts and wanting those to go away so that yeah. she couldn't be so consumed with her gifts. And, and I've, I've experienced that myself. I've talked to other near-death experiencers who have asked for the gifts to go away, and then they feel kind of scared when they go away and empty, you know, when they don't get the dreams and coincidences and kind of knowing from that other side. And then I've seen the opposite thing in some spiritual communities, you know, like maybe in California, where people are like, what are your gifts? Oh, tell me about your gifts. Right. What right. kind of gifts do you have? Oh, well, I have these gifts. And it's almost like a spiritual ego around gifts. And so I found that really interesting. Well, and I think you, you bring up something that, you know, when you have an intense spiritual experience, it really is a gift. And it can be a near-death experience, or it can be a born-again experience. Or it can be just an experience of intensely feeling God's presence. 
what Teresa of Avila really talked about was over time, you begin to worship the gift and not the God who gave you the gift. And so what happens is your whole relationship with God becomes about, well, I need more of those gifts. I need more of those to really feel close to you as opposed to cultivating that closeness to God that, that, you know, um, that goes beyond because all of these gifts, they're, they're, they're kind of doorways to a whole way of living where you really, as you said, you can experience that energy. You can experience that presence. It's with Thomas Kelly. You can experience the Shekinah of the soul that, you know, that just, he, he has a wonderful term. He calls it the slumbering Christ within waiting to be awakened in each and every one of us. Um, and, and I, I think though, uh, over time you can get caught up in your gift and, and it actually begins to inhibit your growth and it begins to inhibit your development. And I think that's, that works with near death experiencers that works with, with, um, Christian people who've, who've had deep spiritual experiences. Yeah. So my next question is you have an interesting background and it really comes out in your book where you bring in psychology and also the Bible. And, you know, so obviously you have experiences as an academic, a pastor, spiritual director, and therapist. Um, what connects all of these? Like I see the connection in the writing of the book, but what connects all of these for you? Uh, human life. I mean, I, this sounds, that, that sounds so simple, but you know, I think that people have a tendency to choose one perspective in understanding human life. You know, I'm going to understand it from a theological perspective. I'm going to understand it from a biological perspective, or I'm going to understand it from a spiritual perspective or, or, you know, whatever. And, and we fight over which one is the most legitimate. I think I've always been fascinated with how do we bring all these different kinds of ideas together? there is a depth of understanding about us in psychology and also in spirituality, um, also in biology, also in art and literature and, and music. And, you know, all of them bring us a different insight. And I think for me, it's always been fascinating from the psychological part. It's always been, how do I know myself? I mean, that's, um, you know, that, that's such an important part of growing spiritually. The more I know myself, the more I can work on putting aside or working through the impediments I have that are keeping me from, from growing. And I, I think for me, you know, to me, the spiritual direction and the psychology go together. In some ways, psychology, I also often said, that's pulling us up by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps spirituality is you realize you still can't get the boot on. And so you're really asking, you know, something else to help you to get them on the rest of the way. And that's how they integrate together is there's still that you need to put in your own effort, but also there's a level to which you need to allow for something greater. Um, you know, and you see that in addictions and in, in um, recovery from addictions is I can get myself so far through self understanding and counseling but there is a level to which I need some kind of higher power to help me to kind of keep moving and to move out of the worship of the, of the substance, you know, or the feeling a substance gives me into something that frees me from that. Exactly. Exactly. That idea that I try to tell people this as well. If you go see a counselor, if you go talk to a minister, if you go see a psychic, you know, whoever you are, a healer, whatever, Ask for God to be there with you. Ask for God to work through someone else to help you because that seems to be the 
extra added benefits that, you know, and I believe that angels can work through people too, that, mm-hmm. you know, that we aren't limited just to the work that we do psychologically, that there can really be the spirit as well. And I, I love the line, I'm going to quote it from your book, with God, there is no secular sacred split. And I felt that as an educator. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I've been in classrooms preaching, you know, I've heard some sermons and I'm like, minus the Bible verses, I've said the same thing based on literature. And, and I know this to be true. You know, I know that, you know, there are these themes that can be taught. You can make a secular environment um, highly spiritual. Well, and I think you've even written about that in your book of turning your classroom into something that allows, you know, even when you're working with impoverished kids, you still can make your classroom sacred, even though they have no idea you're doing that, you know, but you're still doing that. And I think there's a a presence of mind and a presence of spirit that allows that to happen. But you have to want to cultivate that. And I think that's, you know, Again, it, it, it's a gift to be able to be aware of it and to, and to do it, but it does also take some, a level of spiritual discipline to say, okay, in this environment, I'm still going to try to listen to what God is calling me to do, and I'm really going to trust in God's intervention. You, actually, you're bringing up something. Um, this is what our counseling center is about. We are a faith-based but client-centered um, uh, counseling center, which means if you come in as an atheist, we will treat you as an atheist. But if you come in as a Catholic or a fundamentalist or a progressive Christian or whatever, we will treat you as you are. But we are open to allowing that sense of, of faith and God's presence in there. But we will only go to the level to which you say yes to. But, but that was one of the reasons I was willing to leave my church to go there because I just it's, um, it's such a fantastic center and the therapist we have are just, you know, they're all licensed, they're all massive level, they're just really highly qualified. Um, but they also are really open to bringing faith and if people are open to it, integrating spirituality into it. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, but I want to go a bit deeper with the silo um, idea and people staying, you know, in their own communities and talking. And I really, this is like my deep desire and I create it in my classroom. I don't care what political affiliation, what religion, what lack of religion, you know, I don't care, you know, who comes into my classroom. I don't care if they're an illegal alien. I don't care if they, you know, like it does not matter to me. Their their souls are what matter to me. And we're there to, to learn and to grow together. And I think there's so much division that we see in society. And it just seems like a shame that we can't focus more on how community really is created because it's created all over the place. It's created in schools, it's created in churches, you know, it's, we're not as divided as we think. There are plenty of places where people understand one another and talk in nonviolent terms and and principles and and get along. But um, how do you think that the near-death experience community can maybe reach out to churches more or churches can reach out to the near-death experience community more often. You know, this is, I'm going to give you a funny answer. I actually don't think it's your responsibility to reach out to the religious community. I think it's the religious community's responsibility to reach out to you all. I, I, I think there's a reason why near-death experiencers don't tend to share their experiences. And a lot of times it's religious people who prevent it. Now, I, if you don't mind, I'll launch into a, try a short story. So back in the eighties, I was um, a chaplain intern in a hospital down in Washington, DC. 
And because I had read a lot about near-death experiences, um, uh, I, I was kind of open to listening to people's experiences. And there was this Italian woman who was in her 80s who had, um, uh, she called herself Mrs. G. And she began to tell me about her near-death experience of dying of a heart attack in a, in, in, she's not going to undergo surgery. She could hear her daughter calling for her. She could feel the doctors working on her. And she found herself in a dark place where the most intense flower was blooming of colors she's never seen. And she said she looked over and saw her husband who had died 10 years old before. Um, and basically he was smiling at her with this sense of love. And he walked away and everywhere he walked, these flowers sprouted. And it was kind of a way of saying like, you can't stay, you have to go back. But after she told me that story, and I'm not gonna imitate her accent, but she said, I'm only telling you this because you understand. I told my priest, he told me I was crazy. I told my doctor, he told me I was crazy. Um, I told other people in my church and they told me I was crazy. And she said, so you're the first, you know, you're the first pastor. I wasn't even a pastor at the time who, who did it. And I, I, I think there's, um, I mean, I certainly think Howard Storm, who we've talked about, I, I think has done a great service because he's, he had a transforming experience that took him from an aggressive atheist to eventually becoming United Church of Christ pastor. And there are other pastors such as Don Piper and um, John Burke and other people who have kind of, you know, they still hold on to their theology and I, you can see them struggling with what to do. Howard really is one of the few who's been able to navigate both, but you can also see that it's, it's, it's not easy, but I think, um, I think in some ways it's up to the religious world to become more open to your experiences um, because I think that they're the ones who are having the difficulty. So many near-death experiencers, like one of their first things when they get healthy is I want to go to church and you know, they go to church and then they start talking about it and people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm, you know, I don't know what to do with that. John Price talks about this in his book. I think it's called Imagining Heaven. I think that was it. No, it's not Imagining Heaven. It's whatever. It's John Price's book, An Episcopal Pastor, where he talked about he heard two people tell him experiences and he just told them, "Now nah, you're nuts. That didn't happen. And it wasn't until he researched it and then heard another experience that he was like, wow, okay, maybe the problem is me. So long answer to your question. I still think it's, I think if you all are brave enough to share your experiences, it's important for you to do it but I think it's up to the religious world to open up to your experiences and try to figure out how to fit that with, a, with their theology. And one way that I think it can fit with theology is really that experience of God's love. If God is Absolutely. All, all loving, you know, that, that was the most transformative part of my near-death experience, Absolutely. that I was loved that much. And and a lot of near-death experiencers say this, but not just me, but you too, and all of you people at church and everyone, you know, that love is available to everyone. It felt so special and specific. And I think one of the problems I can, you know, criticize the near-death experience community and, and early near-death experiencers is they feel so special, you know, to have experienced yeah. you know, something so profound and it has to be integrated and realize that, oh, you're really quite human still, but you did touch something amazing and it's you're meant to be a reminder of, of that love of God. So I think we can come together in the love of God. 
Well, and I think it's, it's the more church is grounded in love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and others as yourself, the more you don't have a problem with near-death experiencers. And, and this is really true of the mystical tradition. Um, to them, it all starts with not love others as yourself. It's fall in love with God and you will begin to experience God's love and it will just begin to flow through your life. You will begin to accept yourself. You will begin to find a way to love others. Again, sometimes in the religious communities, it's easy to make religion about everything other than falling in love with God and allowing that love to flow through. One of my favorite authors is Corey Temboom, who wrote The Hiding Place. And she writes about how just that powerful sense of love of God followed her into the, um, into the concentration camps. Or Father Arseny, who is a Russian Orthodox priest who spent 25 years in a Soviet gulag, still felt that sense of love and ministered to people in the gulag. Um, you know, but it does, that's, it is that exactly what you said. It's when you ground it in love, that's the common language. And those are the common experiences too. Yeah. So there's a, a couple of things I wanted to talk about in your book about um, leadership and things that really stuck out to me is how you incorporated personality types and personality disorders. And, right. you know, that, that's something that I don't think churches and spiritual organizations uh, focus on enough. I think education's aware you know, of, of uh, personality disorders because you have lots of psychology professors walking around and yeah. on campus and, you know, there's an awareness of how to get help to people. But what do you think that, um, what do you think, just based on what I read, do you think churches should, should know about personality disorders? Oh my, this is a minefield. Uh, I, I, think, I think that actually uh, what I think does happen in churches, people with personality disorders, um, it's, these are disorders where people's personalities are atrophied and, and a way of thinking about it is they've developed a very strong personality in one area. And, and, and one of my, the professors who taught me said, um, a personality disorder is like, you know, a personality is like a toolbox. But when you have a personality disorder, all you have in that toolbox is a hammer. If, if you need to hit a nail or if you need to break something apart, it's a wonderful instrument. But if you need to put a screw in or you need to, to shape something, um, it makes a mess. And I, I think a lot of times with people with personality disorders, they have a very strong, you know, narcissistic personality. They can be very charismatic. They can actually be um, very, they can give confidence to other people that I know what I'm doing. But when it comes to relationships, they can break it apart. Or people who have borderline personality disorder, um, you know, there's such a fear of abandonment that, that I turn every relationship into a test of, are you, are you going to be my friend or be my oppressor. The thing that happens in churches is that a lot of churches really, really, really want to help these people, but because they, they don't understand, um, they don't understand the, the, the disorders, their attempts to help the people end up creating divisions in the church. And, you know, part of what I write in the book is becoming self-aware of, do you have a personality disorder trait that might be destructive towards others? 
because I think that's part of it. But I also think being aware of the destruction other people can do and, you know, how to go about dealing with them in appropriate ways. Um, I, I, as I said, I'm trying very hard not to step in my fields. <laughs> I, I know, because people in the spiritual community come from the same place. They want to say, oh, just give love. Don't give any attention to negativity. And, and yet when someone's in a position of leadership and they have a personality disorder, then things, wheels start falling off in places. Well, that's it. And, and you can have someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder that leads to multiple affairs. And in a church, that can be destructive. And, you know, you can forgive that person. You can try to be loving to that person, but that person probably shouldn't be your pastor. You know, that, that's, it's until they work through this kind of problem. And I think that's, you know, it is, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You want to be loving to people, but love sometimes means setting boundaries. Love sometimes means setting, saying, I will go this far, but I will go no further. Because at this point, it's not love, it's just obsequiousness, or it's just, you know, whatever other big word I can find to put in there. But it's just me trying to make sure you like me or something like that. It's a, yeah, it's a, they're difficulties. And I would think that a lot of borderline personalities are attracted to religion because they like the black or whiteness of it. You know, like this is wrong. You're going to hell. You're going to heaven. You know, I hate you. You're, you know, there's that division. Sometimes I, I think sometimes also, but I, I would probably say more often it's, I don't feel loved and I really need to find people who, who will love me. But the difficulty of the borderline personality disorder is whatever trauma happened in the past, if, it, if there was a trauma, um, it is, um, I'm so afraid of being abandoned that, you know, I really want to be in this loving community, but at the same time, I'm going to keep setting up tests to see if you're eventually going to abandon me. And eventually you're, you're going to fail the test. It just, you, you can't help it. The test is designed to prove that you're not reliable. But I often think people with these borderline personality disorders, they really desperately want to be loved. It's just, it's just, it can be really taxing on the people that they're asking to love them because they're asking them to love them beyond a certain level to which most people just can't do it. Yeah, that makes sense. And then what you wrote about narcissistic personalities, they can initially be wonderful. They can be yep. successful and charming and hilarious. And, you know, I've seen ministers like this who, who you look at and you're like, Oh my God, that was an amazing sermon. You know, yeah. that was awesome. but then you get into their personal life and, and you start seeing the cracks and the problems and and then they're not living in terms with the great facade that they and you see this also in in uh, uh cults with gurus you know um you see it really in a lot of cults but you also see it in a lot of um churches big small or medium where the pastor really creates it almost like a cult-like atmosphere where the pastor has to be at the center you know nothing exists. And then what happens is everybody kind of excuses bad behavior and says, well, you know, the pastor works so hard and is under so much pressure and really is in charge of, of, of leading the flock through all of our traumas and things. And it's actually, well, no, the, the, the person's actually got a narcissistic personality disorder and, and that person's destructive by nature. And, you know, but it's, again, it's just, they're, they're very difficult things to work through. They are, they are, and you brought up some difficult uh, topics in your book, and so I, I love it, so I jump right in, but, um, you know, I, I have friends who 
have been turned off by churches because the pastor left some the wife or someone in the congregation. It was obvious that affair had gone on, then they moved across the country. And and you know, people get hurt by that. They believe yes, in, in someone. And you've pointed out the two different ways that you've seen how pastors have affairs. Sometimes they're overburdened and they're lonely and it's a really tough job and they feel isolated and it's this uh, an affair just like being understood for a moment or just love. Yeah, I, I think there are two, yeah, there are two kinds. There's narcissistic ones that are just, you know, I need this to feed my ego. There are others where I think, um, and you know, I this may not be a popular opinion. I, I do sometimes wish in the church we would treat affairs kind of the way we do um, uh, addictions. You know, if a pastor has an addiction and goes to 30-day rehab, the pastor would come back and everybody would go, you're so brave, you, you, you dealt with your issue. There are so many pastors, and I, I, this is where my counseling and my coaching and spiritual direction comes in. There's so many pastors who are lonely. They listen to everybody else, but they feel like they have no one they can talk to about what they're struggling with. And when their marriages start to fall apart, they all, there's a saddest pressure of, well, you're not really, you're supposed to have a perfect marriage. You're supposed to be at the church all the time and have a perfect marriage at the same time. And they just get hurt. They just get lonely. Maybe, you know, their marriage is falling apart or maybe it's just their spouse is spending so much time paying attention to the kids because you're at the church. And I, it, those ones can be really tragic because when that happens, it not only tears apart the church, but, um, it tears apart the pastor's families and often, you know, there's a stigma now to them that they don't know how to pick up the pieces. And, you know, again, it's distinguishing between a narcissistic affair and a, and a, um, and a um, just loneliness and um, hurt and, and struggling affair. Yeah. I appreciate that compassion because I think that is probably the way God looks at it too. I mean, like there's that's where I got my, that's sort of where I got my idea on that is, well, God's looking at affairs all the time. And I'm not sure. I think God looks at them sometimes with quite a bit of compassion. doesn't mean that we should allow them to go on. You know, it just, it just, I think there just can be a sense of like what a counselor does is, you know, you come in, I'm going to treat you as a person, not as an affair. Right. And the analogy to the addiction is, is important because that stigma is being erased more as people go in for treatment and, and, uh, right. and in, in uh, many different areas, not just churches. So Raymond Moody said one thing to me in an interview that I posted that you might find interesting. He believes that a profound near-death experience can help with a personality disorder. And that makes a lot of sense because a lot of people who might have narcissistic tendencies who have this profound near-death experience, experience a oneness with everyone. And yeah. then they become super empaths. You know, they're, they're picking up on everything and, and their whole life is devoted to helping others. And, and they really do kind of get jarred out of that. I call it the fear, uh, which is almost like this dark cloud that surrounds people for various reasons. And I think, you know, a narcissistic personality is shrouding in fear really and and that near-death experience can just wipe that away too well it does and it, it brings a sense of humility into their lives and, and there is a difference if you have an organic disorder a bipolar or schizophrenia i'm not sure a near-death experience is going to wipe that out because it's part of your brain chemistry but right. a personality disorder it's That's why they've not really found medication that 
deal that helps personality disorder. I think the near-death experience gives them an integrated experience where, you know, as you said, it's, it's, it's a oneness, but it's even more. It's, I'm now willing to work to integrate aspects into my life that I did not. An analogy might be uh, somewhere, something like the Myers-Briggs test, you know, where you've been this severe introvert, but all of a sudden you've had this experience and now I want to go out and be with people. I was a person who was very judging, but now I want to add the perceiving. You don't let go of the stuff that you've developed, but you're now willing to work on the stuff that hasn't been your personality or something like the Enneagram. You know, you are what you are, but now you're working on integrating aspects of all the others. And I think that's a part of a really deep, spiritual life, a really healthy psychological life, um, is you integrate new aspects into your life. Um, I, I think you talked about this in Angels in the OR, certainly virtually every near-death experiencer has talked about this, what it seems like part of the purpose of life is kind of like two things, learning to love and learning, and to learn and grow. And I think part of the learning and growing is I want to now expand who I am into a lot of different areas, into a lot of different ways of being. I no longer am satisfied just to be this person that I was. You know, for you before your accident, you know, kind of atheist and 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 all the rest, it's it's you want to expand into that. And I think that happens to people with personality disorders, and they begin to now grow and stretch and learn in areas that they had they've been, as you said, too scared or just too frustrated. I don't I don't know how to do that. Or you know, depending on what the personality disorder is, you know, if it's an obsessive compulsive personality disorder, it might be, I, I don't know how to let things go. But now that I've had my near death experience, I realize everything is going to be okay. I don't need to be in control of everything. And, and I think there's a, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a expansion to integration. Yeah, and your point was exactly the same as Raymond Moody's. He said if someone had bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or something chemical that affected their brain, a near-death experience probably wouldn't change that unless they had some kind of miraculous healing. Right, but, right. But the personality disorder, there's something that is so profound that, you know, maybe even a healthy person who has a near-death experience, you know, their whole personality changes so dramatically a lot of times, you know, that... Yeah they start seeing. So it does have perhaps an effect on some personality disordered individuals. Yeah, I think, I mean, I will say I've, I've not talked to anybody about that, but I, that's what I would imagine. I would think he's right um, because of the nature of personality disorders. It's, a, it's an underdevelopment into other personalities. And so therefore you have this experience that now says, okay, I'm going to grow in developing other personalities that have not been part of mine. I liked another part of your book and, and you talk about um, leaders who educate others to follow their own calling. And mm -hmm. I think that that's not something you hear in churches a lot, that, that idea of, uh, hey, you go listen to God. And yeah. yet, I think I remember as a child, sometimes that happening, you know, the, that camp and so forth, they might hand us a Bible and say, go out to nature, read the Bible and listen to God. Right. But, but yeah, I love that idea of, of empowering people. I, and, and I'll add something, because you just actually mentioned something that, that I think can be a problem in the Christian world, which is, okay, go out, take your Bible, and, and go out and listen to God in nature. I think there's a much deeper sense in the mystical tradition of, of Christianity, which is, your Bible needs to be a foundation, but you actually should go out there at times without your Bible 
and go listen for God. You should be out there speaking with other people and hearing God through what other people are saying. Or, you know, it, it's, it's this kind of mystical sense of, um, I have this inner ear that is always listening for God so that I can be watching a movie and all of a sudden there's a line in the movie or a scene that all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is God speaking to me. Or, you know, I'm listening to a song and that happens, or I'm reading a book and something hits me, or I'm in a conversation and something hits me, or, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere and a thought just hits me. And I think this is part of that deeper mystical life where you begin to realize that, that there is, you know, pantheism teaches that God is everything. And I don't know that I don't necessarily believe that. I don't, but there is a term panentheism, which is God through everything, which, which Paul talks about in Ephesians where he talks about, you know, there's one God who is above all and in all and through all, which really fits very much with the sense of, of Christ, you know, this, this ongoing conversation, this ongoing sense of the Holy spirit working through everything. And I think there's a way of cultivating a life, you know, whether you've had the near death experience or not of just everything is pregnant with, with, with God's voice and God's guidance. And um, David Stendhal Ross, who's a, a, a Dominican uh, monk who writes about this, he says, one of the keys to that is just learning gratitude. When you develop a sense of gratitude for everything, which, you know, and you're grateful for everything, it literally means your life becomes full of grace and, and you live in sort of an attitude of gratitude that that's where all of a sudden you begin to get the sense of, of God's presence and God's life and God's voice and God's guidance flowing through everything. And I, I think um, sometimes in the Christian world, we basically say, no, 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 you can only hear God this way. You, you can only hear God with the Bible. So if you go out in nature, you, you better take your Bible or you're not going to hear God. And I don't, you know, that's not the model of Jesus. I, you know, he would have had to take a whole cart full of scrolls out with him into the desert to hear God, but he just went out into the desert, you know, and that's where he was grappling and, and that's where he heard. And, and, you know, yeah. And, you know, I, I believe the Bible says prayer and meditation and yeah. so meditation is different from prayer and it can open you up to all kinds of spiritual experiences. And I, I love meditation. You know, my prayers are sometimes pretty short you know, just God be with me, you know, in this moment and let me feel you. And my meditations can be really extensive and can be psychologically healing too. I honestly yeah. believe. And you're, you're actually hitting on something that, that, you know, sometimes in the evangelical tradition, they don't know what to do with meditation and they don't realize that, you know, since the beginning of Christianity, we've had the same thing. It's just, we call it contemplation, you know, and reflection. Um, and, um, uh, and it's been there, you know, since the early monastic movements and, and even before um, this sense of, of sitting in silence, sitting in openness, you know, just kind of, you know, um, but also kind of allowing whatever God or whatever to kind of, you know, lead your thoughts and, and to help you develop insights. And I, it's a, um, again, that's one of those areas that I think a lot of near death experiencers could help Christians recover that sense because I think sometimes we're so rigid in the way, you know, we said you can only have an experience of God this way. And, you know, again, look at the model of Jesus, you know, he's baptized and he goes out into the desert for 40 days and, you know, he's not out there, 
picking sand. I mean, you know, there's, he's grappling, he's struggling, he's in silence, he's in deprivation. But if, if you go through the gospel stories, he's constantly going off by himself to pray. And, and, you know, actually one of the things I love so funny, so to me, this is funny. So, you know, the story of Jesus walking on water, it, it, people really pay attention to that, but they don't realize why Jesus is walking on water. The reason is he went off by himself to pray. They went off in the boat and all this, you know, like the straightest distance between two points is a straight line. So he's on the shore and he walks across the water, but that was preceded by him going off to pray and telling them to go ahead without him. And he was constantly doing that. Sometimes he took people up the mountain or to the, uh, um, uh, to the garden, but, but sometimes it was all by himself. Um, yeah, it just, again, it's, 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 these experiences are so much part of the Christian life, but it's, I think it's having this openness to have an experience that goes beyond just rigid structures. Did you create an atmosphere where you got to hear a lot of stories of spiritual experiences from people in your congregation? Like if I had come to you and said, Hey, I, you know, I was taking a walk in nature and I felt really just emotional about this issue. I prayed to God and I felt God's hands just come down and lift that issue away. And I felt free and, you know, I felt like a miracle occurred. Yeah, you know, yeah. The type of conversation you could have with people. Well, and that was something that at, at our church, um, we really cultivated. When people would tell me spiritual experiences, um, you know, I would often ask them, can you give me an ex can you give me permission to share this and would it be okay to say your name because i wanted people to see that person here in worship today that person had this experience i will say if you had been part of, of our church i probably would have asked you to come forward and talk about your experiences because i think that um i think i'd mentioned to you this in one of our conversations before this that we even collected experiences had people write their experiences down and we published them as a Latin. And, and we had some wild experiences, including the one I, I think I shared with you of a woman in Colorado who was driving from Boulder and hit black ice and went flying off and, and kind of actually heard a voice saying, let go of the wheel. And she went down crashing on the rocks 25 feet below. And she said it literally felt like a hand kind of brought the car down and rested it. She got out, got her four-year-old son out of the back seat, who was still playing with his car back there, didn't even know they had gone there. She's looking up going, how am I going to get out of here? And she sees a guy already rappelling down because as she went off, there was an emergency truck that just happened to be coming down the road and they were already coming down to get her. When they finally got her out, she's like, how am I going to get home? And her neighbor happened to just pull up and he said, I don't know why I was driving to Boulder this route. You know, it's not how I normally go, but I sort of felt like I needed to, to do that. And, and we collected stories like that. And, you know, and I think what it did was it made having spiritual experiences normal. Um, and, you know, which is something we have a hard time with. You know, we have a hard time with it sometimes in church. And I think because there's such a strong push from people who are kind of in the atheistic community against validating any kind of spiritual experience because they're not logical and rational. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like a sandwich of, of just kind of, you know, pressing our experiences and just keep them to yourself. Um, it's actually why Trisha, I think um, what you're doing here is such a great service because 
you're actually not putting your light under a bushel, but you're actually kind of going out there and saying, hey, this is stuff that we're, these are experiences we're having and we're not going to just hide them in our homes, but we're going to share them with people. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, I talked with John Burke and that was with the uh, second annual near death experience summit. And I pushed him a little bit on on a a couple of issues. And one was, I think he'd lost his son and I was talking about mediumship and how um, so many people have felt either their ancestors when they had a near death experience, they saw them on the other side or just regular people have felt the love of someone that they were close to come back to them, give them a moment of peace and say, I love you. I'm there waiting for you. And I, I said, you know, don't you think that God wouldn't separate us from that love? And he said, yeah, probably not. <laughs> you know, like right. maybe it's just the term mediumship that scares people. But when you put it in terms of we're connected in love to those we have loved, God isn't going to shut off that love. Yeah. And I think that's, you're hitting a point. You know, I, I think, there is a struggle sometimes with channeling and medium because not all spirits are good. Yeah. And just as I said, you can get so attached to a spiritual gift that you begin to worship the gift. There are so there are people who can get so focused on communication from elsewhere that they open themselves up to things that are darker. It doesn't mean that good, whatever they are from elsewhere can't communicate to us, but, but, you know, as, again, mentioned Howard Storm, the beginning of his story is just this horrific, hellish experience of, of people just wanting to rip him apart and do everything bad. And I, I think his book does bring out that, you know, that there is a darkness out there that does not want love of God, that does not want connection with, with a, a more deeply spiritual world. But they also don't have much power unless we just open up to it all the time. And I think the more you begin to focus on the gift where you begin to worship the gift, that's where the darkness can come in. I I actually agree. And it took me a while to get to that place of agreement because after my near death experience, I was just in this place of, Oh, it's all good. It's all good. You know, I'm, I'm protected by the light no matter what, you know, I've got God. So God is so strong with me that, you know, no darkness can penetrate, but uh, I I do want to share a quick story and then talk a bit more about this because you mentioned C.S. Lewis and I I did grow up reading him and uh, I had a moment where someone said, hey, you know, why don't you try this protocol of John of God? So I bought the herbs and I knew that, you know, his healing spirit or a healing spirit might visit me that night and I actually saw, you know, visually saw a spirit appear and it had a cross and I said, hey, can you help me with this thyroid issue? Can you help me with physical healing? And the spirit said, no. And I said, wow, in the name of God be God, you know, in the name of Jesus, yeah. get out of here. You know, and it, it really kind of freaked me out. And then a few months later, um, it was found out that John of God was trafficking young women through his place and that he had poisoned different people, uh, you know, like given them something and raped them who would come there to, to his, um, cathedral or his place of healing and I thought wow you know my my intuitive knowing just said hey why don't I ask the spirit what it's about and that shot that that exists and and I I, you know I think you're fortunate um because I think it's and and in that case it's both a person and a spirit that's that's 
you know, you just see this throughout our culture of people who um, misuse trust to hurt. And I, and um, I, I do love the line from Lord of the Rings. One of the ways you tell the spirits is they're, they're, the hobbits are kind of asking, well, how do we know Aragorn is good? Or how do we know Aragorn's not also evil? And they said, well, I think if, if it was evil, it would look fairer and feel fouler. And I think sometimes, you know, people who are abusive and manipulative, they're really good at making themselves look fair and looking kind of beautiful and wonderful. But there's an intuitive sense, if you're paying attention to it, that there's something foul about them. And to pay attention to that, that, you know, that foulness about them. But sometimes we get so caught up in, in you know, um, if it looks good, it must be good, that I think that, that can be a difficulty. Yeah, so there's a, it seems like a double-edged sword, certainly in writing, you know, my book, and I've grown a lot since my book. I wanted to write it as a memoir and just put out there things that were not healed or things that were not great about my life and just write honestly as like a human being struggling. Your book was very brave. I, I will say, I, I said that to you when we had our, our personal conversation. I, I appreciated that. I don't think I could you're very brave. And I, and I, and I appreciate that because you really, um, I, I think, I think your book does a service to people by showing, you know, where the spiritual really does help you, but where, you know, your own, your own background, your own struggles still leave you open to, you know, to things that aren't always healthy. And I, and I, and I think, yeah, you were really brave in doing that. And I think you really did a service to other people in the way you wrote that. It's, it's interesting though, like in coming out and, you know, showing flaws, showing places where I'm still grieving and maybe in the angry stage or, you know, whatever it might be that people want to judge me as that's, person, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I think, no, I was just in the angry phase. You know, I'm in the acceptance phase now. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's funny how people want to nail you to a cross for actually sharing your shadow self when really the whole point of it was me going, hey, don't put too much faith in a person, whether they're a minister, a teacher, a near-death experiencer, you know, whoever they are, look to God. Because yeah. We are human beings and you know we're fallible and we will make mistakes and the truth is your connection to god and i don't know if you uh, understand that or, or if you oh no completely and actually i would even take it a step further it's not just that we're fallible i don't i you know we're not meant to be perfect we are meant i believe there's something about this world where we are meant to experience you know just all of this stuff you know that 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 and actually i have a i have another theory about this and if you got to know me you'd find out i have a theory about everything but but um one of my theories which i think i did write about in humble leadership but i can't remember because i wrote that back in 2010 um that one of the things that um that i really believe is that god has put us in this world it's a world of choices you know, it's, it's all the experiences we have, they, they, they push us to make choices. And ultimately, the choice is, in this moment, am I going to be open up to God? Or am I going to be closed off to God? 
And if I'm open up to God, you know, most people think, you know, that if I get rid of God, I'm really free. But what happens to them is often they become trapped more by their drives, their impulses, their need to have a world that makes logical, rational sense. Whereas I think when you make the choice in every moment to become more open to God, you actually develop a much greater freedom to say, I'm, I'm not going to do based on what my impulse is. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to react to this based on the way my past has been and the trauma I've had in my past. I'm going to, I'm going to react to this in a new way, in an open way. And I, I think that um, there's a degree to which um, um, that, that's part of the reason why I think your book was really brave because what you did was you laid out all the choices that, that laid before you and you kept showing how, you know, and, and this part of my life, you know, was really screwed up. And here's how I made the choice to open up to the spiritual and to be healed in this way and to be healed in that way. And I, I um, it's a, um, and I really do believe that, that that's part of the world God has put us in is to, uh, it's a world of choices and your choice in every moment is, am I going to be open to God? Or am I going to be closed off to God? And for most, I mean, for me too, I mean, just, you know, live most of our lives just kind of closed off, you know, I mean, but, you know, later on, I'll turn on the TV and watch something that has nothing to do with thoughts of God. It's just, I want to watch the rerun of the tape last night of Bull or something like that, you know? And, but, but I think the spiritual life, whether you've had a near-death experience or you're following a more uh, spiritual, mystical path of a religion, is how do, in each moment, do I become more open to God and to how God's calling me to live in this moment, which is where real freedom is. You know, it, it's the freedom to choose something that's not based on my past, on my impulses, on my drives, on my instincts, on all of that stuff. Right. You write about how radical openness to God and how that helps leaders. And I think every person struggles with that. You can get into ego or selfishness, you know, wounded ego, and really want something so badly. And then you think, wait, what does God want? You're like, I'm a godly person. Of course God wants this. And you're following it from this logical point until you stop and you go, oh, God really doesn't care that, you know, I wrote a book. God cares that I'm connected with all these people. Yeah. You know? yeah, I, God, when I die, God, I don't think God's going to care a bit whether I wrote any of my books. You, you know, but you, but you bring up something, because this is actually how I left my church to go to Samaritan. I, I was never planning on leaving that church until I retired, you know, um, and it didn't seem like they wanted to kick me out. So, you know, I, I was gratified about that. And I really had this sense I'm being called to go there, but I did not want to go there. I even showed up for my first interview in blue jeans, untucked shirt, just came back on vacation with a scraggly beard because I was like, I'm going to look really bad so they don't want me. And I just had this sense of, I think I'm called there. But I also asked three people I was really close to, um, one who's a therapist who had worked at Samaritan one who's one of my best friends and one who is our associate pastor who did not want me to leave uh, the church. And I basically said, I need you to pray and ask the question, am I called to go or not? And, and, you know, the counselor said, yeah, you're clearly called to go. Um, uh, uh, Ralph is, is one of my best friends said, you know, Standish, I don't want you to go, but you're clearly called there. And our associate pastor, Connie, who also is one of my best friends, 
said, I, I absolutely do not want you to go there. I, I just, I, it, it really bums me out. But she said, you are clearly called to go there. You are not clearly, you're called not to stay here. And she said, I hate the fact that I'm saying this to you. And I, but I think there's that, it is, it is that sense of, of, I, hopefully I'm still responding to what you said, but it's, it is this sense of, 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 of God kind of speaking through all of them and, and through experiences and all the rest. And hopefully that's a response to what you said before. So. Yeah, it, it is. And since I read the book on leadership, I'm going to end with um, kind of a broad question on leadership, but so much of it, the, the chapters really spoke to me, you know, prayer for prayerful leadership, unifying leadership, um, humble leadership. And you mentioned Gandhi as an example of someone who was inspired by Jesus. And I found that, that really interesting. But what do you say to not just near-death experiencers and Christians and people who silo, but all around the world, there's so much, um, there, there isn't a unifying spirit. At least we're not hearing that in the news. You know, we were seeing it in organizations, we're seeing it in small areas, but that's not what is being spread, the polarizing, um, polarizing ideas and extreme polarization is what we're seeing in this world. I hate that. I want to bring people together. <laughs> you know, like, right. I want people to get along and listen to one another and work together because, as you pointed out, there's much more creative, loving solutions to even the most polarizing of topics. And, and I could go on and on about that, but I, I want to hear about you and what you think you know might be some of the answers to this polarization and how to bring more unity in organizations uh um <laughs> you know so i've actually thought about this a lot i i don't know the extent to which this is going to happen I, I will say howard storm in his book he writes about being told by angels and Jesus what's going to be like in 200 years, and it's very unifying. It's very difficult to see that right now. Um, I, two thoughts that are running through my head. Often great catastrophes lead to great unity. You saw the United Nations develop out of World War II. You saw uh, uh, um, relationships between us and Germany, us and Japan develop after World War II that are among the strongest in, in the world. Um, I, I think God created us, C.S. Lewis uses the term, we're amphibians. We live both in the animal world and the spiritual world. And I think one of the things that happens is there are periods of time where humans globally and nationally begin to immerse themselves more and more into their animalness. And I think that we have a very strong survival instinct and we have very strong tribal instincts. And I think what's happening right now around the world, the polarization you're seeing is people feeling as though their lives are threatened in one way or the other, not through war, but, you know, by immigrants or, you know, by liberals or by conservatives or, or, you know, by people in Europe or by people in China, you know, or by the uh, coronavirus or whatever. And I, I think what happens is when people get scared, they become more tribal. And I think the struggle of religion is religion gets abused to support tribalism. 
And I, and I think that sometimes that, that you see that happening. And there are always people who are trying to overcome this. There are always people who are saying, this isn't how we're called to be. Um, and I, I, you know, my hope is, I've also done a lot of generational studies, and the hope is the millennial generation coming up, which is a much more civic-minded and communal generation, that they are living in the anxiety of this age. And my hope is that as they come up, they're going to try to create a world where people actually come together. But I think right now we have uh, uh, the leadership all around the world is very idealistic and very individualistic. And they become very tribal where we all find our little tribes and we have to have power over others to make ourselves feel safe. And it's not until I think either a generation that comes up and says, Hey, you are safe. So let's work together or um, people just get tired of division. And I think that could be coming in one year. It could be coming in five years, but I think there's going to be a time where people get really sick and tired of the fighting and they will look to something else that that's my hope i you know it, you yeah know. It, it, it's a complex topic and i'm sure there'll be a lot of youtube comments about that if we get too deep into it but uh, but humility and gentleness and care for people seems to be the answer that no matter who you are what your belief system is and i know this as a teacher if i reach out to someone at that core level of hey i want you to have a good life i want you and your family to have a good life and I'm sure you know this as a counselor, then people's hearts break open. It's like, oh, yeah. you don't care about my political beliefs. Or, and if we start looking at the world that way, then the world changes. But, but yeah, there's... there's well, and, and just a real quick thought on that, Tricia, um, is that um, really that is the answer. We, I, I have no power over the world. I, I, do have, I do have the ability to make sure that whoever I'm working with, whoever I'm with, that... I'm responding in a way that's loving and caring to the best of my abilities. That is what I have the freedom to do and the ability to do. And I think in some ways, you know, when you're in times like what we are now, you realize I, I can't do anything about this, but I can do something about how I'm going to be today. And I can do something about how I'm going to be tomorrow. Yeah. And that creating peace is a beautiful thing and it can happen in pockets, even yep. when, vision in other pockets that you can create peace in your schools, in your churches, in your organizations, in your businesses, and people are working to do that. And I think all over the place. Yeah. All over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so whatever the division is going on on a large scale, it's actually in some ways not going on in communities because people in communities are still caring about each other. You know, I, I realize, you know, over Thanksgiving, this stuff is dividing families, but families are still caring about each other. And there are always still people out there trying to uh, heal all the stuff that's going on. Yeah. And, and perhaps that comes through nonviolent communication, but perhaps it comes through suffering, too. You know, perhaps some um, some systems have to crumble. You know, some systems have to change. And maybe. Yeah. In our lifetimes, maybe that's in a few decades. Um, but. But yeah, sometimes suffering forces people to go, oh, wait a second, I don't want my brother and sister to suffer to this degree. And I hope that we're wise enough and smart enough to alleviate that. And I think that's one of the main reasons why I talk is I want peace <laughs> to spread. You know, I want love to spread and understanding to spread across this nation and the world. So, so let me ask you a broad question as we end. Through your experiences, your near-death experiences, what do you have a sense 
is the way the angels and those higher power feels about all of this. Uh, yeah, so that I feel as if these near-death experiences were often, not always, but were often brought out to remind people that we're more connected than we realize. And, you know, that's a message that gets um, disseminated and explained a lot. But I also feel <clears throat> that, like Howard Storm, there's not enough of us, you know, and sometimes I feel anxious that that message isn't as widespread as it could be. Well, this is where that <laughs> overcoming the silos makes a difference because I think if you're able to engage conversations with people who haven't had near-death experiences um, and, and have those conversations, then what happens is that spirit begins to spread beyond just near-death experiencers. And you'll find there are a lot of people in churches who um, are yearning for the same kinds of things, but they just haven't had near-death experiencers as friends and vice versa. So, you know, maybe hopefully in like a really, really, really tiny way, the conversation we've had can open up others. Well, and what I also feel like the angels and what, <clears throat> what God shows me <clears throat> So we were briefly chatting off camera and I, I really do want to bring up an important point. You see this in counseling and I see this with my students and researchers are writing about it, but students are many of them, not all of them, but many of them have very high anxiety, which doesn't necessarily have to do with technology, but it has to do with, oh my God, there's so much division in this world and there's so much fighting and there's uh, so many problems, how are we going to fix all this? And it, do I even get a college degree if the world's gonna end in 30 years or 40 years? Right. Yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, I try to tell those kids who are not choosing college, hey, miracles and miraculous things happen because of one amazing person, you know, who decides to put all of their effort into something. If you all put that kind of effort into this, you can easily turn this around and everyone has suffering in whatever generation they're born into. It's like, are you going to rise or are you not? And that's really the question. Well, I think that was what we talked about off camera is, is it's Samaritan. We just see so many young adults and adolescents who are struggling with anxiety and we have really, I mean, really good therapists who work with them. Um, but I think a large part of it is we keep looking for, what's causing that anxiety it's and you know it's them looking at their phones and really it's the whole world around them it's it's people just constantly fighting on tv it, it it's this sense of i've grown up with 9 11 and afghanistan and iraq and the crash um and terrorism i mean just you know my kids went to school and had active shooter uh drills all the time and they're going through metal detectors in the schools and you know, we keep looking at it because well, they're looking at their phones that they're anxious. It's like, no, it's just in the environment. And again, we can't fix that. But what we can do is do our own little pockets of it um, and making a difference where we are, which is, I think, what you write about and you've talked about in your teaching is, you know, I can't, I can't fix Washington, but I can fix this classroom. Yeah. And that idea, near-death experiencers come back and we're overwhelmed sometimes and go, oh, God, I'm not making enough of a difference. And I keep saying, doesn't matter. God's looking at what you can do. And maybe it's just your community. You know, it's maybe it's just what you can do. That's you being in the light of God. And that's all you can hope for. And you don't know what kind of difference it makes to someone else who spreads more of that light. 
Yeah, and I think that's the deeply spiritual life is one where you do, you know, I, I've struggled with this my whole life of, you know, I preach a sermon. It's like, well, that, that doesn't make any difference. And it's like, well, but it made this much difference. And if you can get, and it's not just about me, but it's also about the people in the community who are, you know, caring for each other and, and that are reaching out also. And that this, you know, everybody made fun of George H.W. Bush when he talked about a thousand points of light. But, you know, there's some truth to that. You know, if you have a thousand points of light, it's pretty bright. Um, and if all you are is one point of light with 999 other people, you can really brighten up a lot of things. But you can only be responsible for the light you're bringing. You can't be responsible for how big it is in the world. And I think that's, a, um, again, conversations like these, in conversations in general, they, they have the ability, you know, our conversation is not going to change the world and it probably won't change many people, but you know, it may make that much of a difference. And that's more of a difference than was there before. And we can just invoke God and say, God use this in the way. Yeah, that absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and hope that there is a spread of, of unity just from this idea. I mean, someone might steal an idea and create an even better video from this. So you never know. <laughs> you never know. You never know. <laughs> but it has been such a pleasure ch talking with you. And I know we didn't get to everything in your books, um, but it has, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you for taking that time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate, I really appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation. It's, it's, it's allowed me to kind of talk about an area of my life that I've developed in the near death experience world that, that I've actually kept from other people for 30 years. Um, you know, I've been studying this stuff and I've shared it with very little, very few people cause you know, I've never had the near death experience, but I've had the experience of people don't know what to think about Graham talking about near death experiences. That's great. That's awesome. And I really appreciate it because I think it will help uh, some people who occasionally contact me, some people who, want to talk about their spiritual experiences, but are deeply involved in churches as well. Yeah. yeah thank you so much. And thank you, Trisha. And for those of you who are listening, I'll put links to Graham's uh, website and books below. And also if you are interested in the second annual near death experience summit and still want to purchase some of those interviews, I did interview John Burke and Howard Storm and Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart and several other people. And, and those conversations were a lot of fun, but thank you for listening and, May you 